Good morning, Fellowship High Crest. Good morning. Oh, man, it is good to be with you this morning, to be here in the house. I mean, uh, we had that one week where we got snowed out, and I just felt like I had something in reserve. You know, I'm, I'm thankful for technology. Um, and the ability we had to uh, live stream the service from the Urus campus at 9.15 and how great that was. Um, but here's the deal. See, um, some of you guys know Trisha and I met through eHarmony. And we dated long distance. I lived in Texas and she lived in Kansas City um, as we dated and, and until we were married. And, you know, the, the marvels of technology meant that we could FaceTime and, and we could, um, uh, if you still use the, the um, Skype and all those kind of things, that was great having that. But I tell you what, she's even more beautiful in person. And that's the same thing I feel about the body. While you have those different um, technologies and tools that are available and you can do that, man, there is something about being in the physical presence of the body that you just can't get through a live stream. All right. And so I'm glad to be here with y'all guys this morning. And we had a fantastic time at the campus Christmas party on Wednesday night. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was a great time, a lot of fun, and so we're just going to continue on. If this is your first time as a guest here at Fellowship High Crest, I want to say welcome. And I want to let you know that uh, while I speak this morning, uh, you'll see some page numbers that are on the screen that correlate with the main passage that we'll be focusing on this morning. Now, that page number will match the page numbers that are in the Bible that are in the, in the seats. If you don't have a Bible, then please take that one as a gift to you. If you don't have one that's easy to read, please take that one as our gift to you. Or if you know someone who doesn't have a Bible, then please take that one as our gift um, from the both of us to them. This morning, we start our Advent Sermon Series. And, and, and it will be a little bit different than our normal sermon series in that we'll be telling the story of Christ's arrival here on earth through different uh, perspectives. And as we share this story, uh, we'll spend a little time seeing where we fit into the story. And, and, and here's a little bit of a hint. Um, none of us will be baby Jesus. <laughs> I know he grew up and he was a man and he had a beard. But I like to think I'm at this time of year as a baby. Some of y'all didn't get that little Ricky Bobby for you. Um, And so, yeah. So with that, let us go. Um, The Bible is made up of two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Our focal passage for this morning comes from the New Testament. And the first four books of the New Testament are known as the Gospels. Um, The first three of those books, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they all coincide. They tell the same story, but from different points of view. Um, Last weekend, David and I got to watch the Texas OU game together. Um, And uh, he is an OU fan. I'm still working on his sanctification. And I am a Texas fan. And although we were watching the same game, I was watching it through the lens of righteousness. And he was watching it through the lens of sin. The same game, but different points of view. 
And so here we are, we're looking at these stories, and as we go throughout this, this Advent sermon series, we're, all, we're going to alternate between the first and the third books of the New Testament. This morning we're in Matthew, and that is the very first book of the New Testament. And so what you get is there is a period of time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament where God was silent for 400 years. It's kind of like the time period where God was silent between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. But here we get, after 400 years of silence, the God of the universe decided to wrap on flesh and enter back into the lives of his people in a visible way. And that's what brings us to our focal passage this morning, which is found in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 23. And here's what he says. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. And during the reign of King Herod, about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord has spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the stars first appearance. Herod's brutal action was filled with, uh, fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard from Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. 
take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judah or Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said. He will be called the Nazarene. This is God's word. On the throne in Jerusalem, in the first century, sat Herod the Great. What do we know about him? Well, to get a a quick glimpse, you can look at the title of a book that was written about him. Herod the Great, Statesman, Visionary, and Tyrant. After the fall of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, whom Herod had a partnership with, Herod um, put his family up in this mountaintop kind of palace away from everywhere called Masada, and he rushed to Rome, to appear in front of Octavian. And once there, he made the case of why he could and should be a loyal and faithful follower of Rome. The Roman Senate heard his plea and gave him the title, the King of the Jews. The Jews never accepted him as a king, um, even though he built a temple mount for them and, and funded the temple for him. He was not chosen by their priest, nor identified by their God as their king. He was not even Jewish. He was a master builder. The physical kingdom that Herod built over 2,000 years ago can still be seen in ruins today. A couple of those projects that can be seen are, are Caesarea by the Sea, which he built as a tribute to Caesar, and the Temple Mount, which still stands today. But Herod did more than build buildings and monuments. The way he built his life built a reputation. He was a brutal, ruthless, vindictive, and dangerously high-strung tyrant. He was fearful of any threat to his throne and had over 2,000 bodyguards. He had 10 to 11 wives. He was so wrapped up in conspiracy reports that that he had one of his wives, the one he loved the most, executed. He had his mother-in-law, two brother-in-laws, and two of his sons executed. We see in Herod that that, um, because he was just so nasty that that Caesar Augustus said that um, I would rather be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons because practicing Jews didn't eat pork. This is the type of life that Herod led. It's no surprise then that when the wise men or the magi from the east came, that that those who looked for the signs and the stars, for the signs and the prophecies of the time, that, that when they came to Jerusalem and sought audience with Herod to inquire, where is he who was born king of the Jews, that Herod was greatly concerned. But it wasn't just the question of where is he that was born king of the Jews. It's what they said they were there to do when they found him. They said, where is he that was born the king of the Jews? For we have come 
to worship him. Worship the king. So here's Herod, king, hearing these other people come into his palace. Saying they're here to worship the one that was born king. Not you, because Herod, you're not our king. But we're here to worship the one who was born king, our king. Can I tell you something? A lot of life is all about approach. And you have to be careful when you're entering into a palace where someone else sits on the throne and begin asking to see someone else be worshipped. Kings don't usually give up their throne willingly. Herod went um, black ops and he, he had his black ops team go and try to find out where the baby was, where the Messiah was supposed to be born. And he sought counsel from the Jews and their prophets written hundreds of years previous to his time. Um, And they told him it was in Bethlehem in Judea that this was supposed to happen. And he started to think like, man, Bethlehem in Judea, that's not too far from where we at right now in Jerusalem. So now you say that there's somebody coming from my throne within arm's reach of where I'm living at. Huh. And you say he's just a baby, huh? Hmm. So you you, you get this thing where he commissioned the Magi to go and to find the baby and to find out where they were at. And they found him and they found this child and his mother Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. And when they found him, they worshiped him and they gave him gifts of gold and incense and, and myrrh. After being warned in a dream, they wisely followed a different path and direction home. And they went to their own regions on their way. Now, outwitted by these foreigners, um, he, he, he arose in a fury, and Herod, Herod ordered all the infant boys in Bethlehem to be killed. Now, because of the size of the town, Bethlehem was probably about 400 people at that time. So this probably would have been around a dozen babies who were killed. And that's, that's probably why we don't have a big historical record of, of when this happened in Bethlehem. It was probably about 12 kids that were killed. But even more so, it was said this of his reign. They said there was never a day in Herod's reign when someone was not executed. This is the type of man that Herod was. The Magi, the the wise men, um, I know a lot of times in Christmas songs and different things that nature will hear these three kings, but we're not actually told through the scriptures that it was three of them or the number of them exactly. What we are told is the type of gifts that they brought. And we're told that when they brought these gifts, when when uh, when they saw this king of kings, we're told that they worshiped him. We see in them the approach to the king that was born to to target our celebration of Christmas. We see what our celebration of Christmas is supposed to be. They sought the king. They found the king. They worshiped him and they gave them what they had. That was the approach. We're also shown in this story another approach, that of Herod. 
He was startled by the seekers. He was unsettled by the king. He was he was threatened by the king's presence and he tried to execute him so that he could stay on the throne. It's easy to look at Herod and say that, man, Herod was this nasty dude. He was this villain in the story. He was this dark and evil power. It's easy to see that. See that. But I want to have us take a pause for a second. Before we write them off, I, I need for us to realize that, that the very thing that was at work in him is at work in each and, one of, each and every one of us. All of us have a little bit of Herod in us. Within every human heart, there is a throne. The Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that the evil of the world ultimately stems from the self-centeredness, the self-righteousness, and the self-absorption of every human heart. Each of us wants the world to orbit around us and our needs and our desires. We don't want to do God's will. We don't want to serve God and our neighbors. We want them to serve us. In every heart, then, there is a little king here that wants to be and is threatened, uh, wants to rule and is threatened by anything that may compromise his power and authority. Each of us wants to be the captain of our own faith and the, and the master of our own souls. Each of us. The nativity of Jesus Christ, uh, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will threaten the throne of every man, woman, and child that walks this earth. Every one of our thrones will be threatened. The wise men who came, they came to seek and find and worship the king that was born. And that was a threat to the king who was already on the throne. On one hand, you look at this perspective and you say of all the people in the land, you have Herod, who is the the most powerful king in the region. And of all the people that he could have been afraid of, it was this little bitty baby boy born in a cave of humble means with his parents. This was the guy that he was afraid of, that he was threatened by. The question is, what little threat upsets the throne of our lives? The little threat of a missed expectation by our boss or our spouse or our children or our parents? The little threat of an economic downturn, a layoff, an unexpected bill at this time of year? Not being able to get your kids some gift that they've asked for? The fear of not having enough or not being enough to be successful. From the throne come the decisions and the judgments that will rule our lives. And whoever sits and whatever sits on the throne of our hearts will determine how we make decisions, how we make judgments, and how we view the world. All of us got a little King Herod in us. Some of us at sometimes a lot of King Herod in us, and we're being honest with it, one another. The thing is, there's only one seat on the throne of our lives. We see that throughout Scripture. We, we, we know that for sure. There's only one seat on the throne of our lives. 
Only one thing can sit on the throne of our lives. And, and right now, our contemporary culture, it's champions this self-ruled life. But if we really were to dissect this notion of this self-ruled life, we would understand that it's really not this self-rule that's happening, but it's something or someone who is sitting on the throne of our hearts that's really making all the decisions and judgments for our lives. You can be aware, you can be unaware, but it's still going to happen. There's only one seat on the throne of our lives. And whoever occupies that seat will make the decisions and judgments of our lives. The question is, what am I seeking and what will I find? And when I find it, how will I follow? Just think about all the things that that we have allowed to sit on the throne of our hearts over the years. And what's been the result of it? What are you seeking? Is it acceptance? Fitting in has caused me to lose track of, of who I was created to be. I lost track of where I gained my value. I gave the interest of my heart and, 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 and my decisions to, to people and things that wouldn't invest them wisely. And I find myself losing every time. When, when in reality, Christ has my best interest in mind. And I've already been accepted by him in the Father. What are you seeking? Is it financial independence? I had dead people goals. I just didn't want to fret and I didn't want to suffer anymore. I wanted to have a buffer for all the what ifs of life so I wouldn't have to feel when difficult times and situations came. I wanted this buffer in my life. I wanted to to be able to say, no, no, it's all cool. I don't have to worry about anything. But those are dead people goals. If that's your goal this season to not have any troubles, then you might as well go ahead and lay down. The truth is, because I wanted this buffer, I created a buffer between me and those that I love. And therefore, no one could be around to enjoy the things that I was chasing after. In reality, uh, the riches of being known and loved by the God of the universe is where real security is found. What are you seeking? Is it being liked and appreciated? Seeking applause and, and more press. The thing about this one is, is, is if that's what you're shooting for, you always have to top yourself. Man, you know how tiresome that is? To always figure you got to one-up yourself from the last time. And therefore, there was no room or grace for myself or others around me. When I figure it's all about performance all the time and about applause and I got to top myself, I can't trust anybody else with anything in my life. The truth is this. God adores me so much so that he gave his son for me. What are you seeking? Are you seeking, you know, not failing morally or in ministry? 
Can I tell you what's more depressing than making a mistake? It's living your entire life focused on not making a mistake. If all of your day, if all of your worry, if all your concern is just this, don't mess up. Then you will never be able to enjoy what God has already placed in your life. Living a life centered around who or what you don't want to be is one of the most depressing and daunting things you can do. It makes it to where you are inauthentic with yourself, with God and with others. It is a terrible way to lead life. And the truth is, God loves all of me. My ugly spots and my mess ups in my past. What are you seeking? Is it respect? I want it to be looked at in a certain way. And the the truth is, the God of the universe finds me captivating. and He keeps his eye on me and it causes me to look deeper into his. What are you seeking? Is it reputation? I wanted to leave a legacy. But the truth is, knowing and loving Christ and doing life in a way that causes others to want to do the same is the greatest legacy that I could ever leave. We have to come to the end of ourselves. We have to realize that the path forward begins when we step away from ruling on the throne and allowing Christ to be our king. The word of God and sharing the story of the nativity, the birth of the king of kings presents us with two options. And here's the two options. Our kingdom or God's. Something else or the one and only. We have to make a choice. You can't have both. What will it be? What kingdom will you choose? We're here to pursue the approach of the wise men. We need to seek the king. And when we find him, we need to follow him. We need to worship him. And we need to lay our lives for him. We need to lay down our lives before him and we need to live our lives for him. How do you know if you're seeking and following the king? When you're seeking and following the kings, there's a couple of things that you will seek out in your life. And there are a couple of things that you will receive, you'll see as a result of seeking and following him in your life. What are they? The first one is if you are seeking and following the king, you will seek humility over power. Think about how God presented his son, Jesus, God in the flesh to the world. If more worldly power was how he wanted to bring Christ into the world, then Christ would have not been born in Bethlehem, but he would have been born in Rome at the center of the power of the world during that time. And he would have had healthy and and, and wealthy and powerful parents who could have planned out his life and and guided everything. He would have went to the best schools. He would have had the best tutors. He would have had all the best... uh, Uh, soccer coaches growing up he would have had all those things in place but that's not how God chose to bring them into this world your humble beginnings and circumstances your past mess up and mistakes might be your greatest blessing when you're seeking and following the king you'll choose to seek reverence over respect when the wise men asked to see the king that was born, it was interpreted as disrespect by Herod. 
He's like, wait, I'm, I'm the king. Who are, you, who are you asking about? I'm the king. Herod's approach to, to Christ in response to the news was to destroy every option that could be a threat to his throne, to his reign. He killed all the boys in Bethlehem as a result of him feeling disrespected. But here's the question. How many people have to suffer when I feel disrespected? In your life, when you feel disrespected, how many people suffer in your wake? What do we see from the wise men? They found him and they worshiped him. We do not see the scriptures providing stories of people finding Jesus and staying the same or using him to become greater. What we see in the scriptures is that when people find Jesus, they worship him. You want to know if you're following Jesus? Check out your worship. You can respect someone and be flattered by them when you come into their presence or, or even when you meet them. But to worship someone, man, that's, that's just a step too far. Can you really worship what is on your throne? What is it that's determining how you live your life and is it worthy of your worship? When you're seeking and following the king, you'll seek recognizing over recognition. What happens when you make all the plans and you and you put in all the hard work and, and you pull off this incredible event and, and you and you reach the unthinkable goal, but no one recognizes you and no one appreciates you, at least not in the fashion that you think you ought to be recognized or appreciated. You know, like you, parents know this, right? When you, have you ever gotten something together? You thought, man, this gift right here is going to knock this kid's socks off. <laughs> and you've been planning and scheming. You've been scraping and saving. And you think, man, this right here is going to knock their socks off. Maybe you're dating somebody and you thought, this gift right here, this homemade yarn towel holder is going to knock their socks off. Right? This homemade piece of pottery that I'm making him is going to knock his socks off. Right? And you give it to him, he's like, oh. <laughs> Have I told you how beautiful your eyes are? <laughs> right? I mean, this is Herod on the throne of our hearts. You know, the longing for us to be recognized, to be significant, to be important, to be irreplaceable is sometimes the most obvious thing in our lives. And sometimes it's concealed. Sometimes we don't let others know about this, this craving we have for people to say, man, that person right there is just great. But when we get in those moments, that is Herod on the throne of our hearts. The pride to think and even say sometimes, if I were in charge, then this wouldn't happen. You know that pride when we can look at everything that's going on and think, I could do that better. They should have put me in charge of that. 
That pride that when we're not recognized, we start to rule from insecurity and, and, and we begin to use language that a victim like, you know, you always do this or you never do this. And, and, and every time this happens, you do this. And, and, and it's never ending processing begin. The problem is we were never meant to be recognized as kings. We were meant to recognize the king of kings and to be called children of the king. And when we truly recognize the king of all kings and make him Lord of our lives, then our lives are set free from ourselves and we can recognize others the way that he recognizes us. But we can't do that if we try to occupy the throne. The first step, the first step in turning over the throne of our hearts to the God of the universe happens when we do this thing called stepping over the line of faith. Stepping over the line of faith happens when we admit that we are a sinner and because we're sinners that we make pretty crappy kings. It continues by acknowledging that it's not by our ability to pull it together or even the strength of our hands to hold it together, but simply by recognizing that it's solely by the acts of Christ being born, living a sinless life, dying an undeserved death, and raising from the grave, that we get to find the hope, the love, and the security that our hearts long for. If you haven't done that, I want to invite you to do that this morning. I want to invite you to give Christ the throne of your heart. I'm going to pray no special words, no special order of words. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. If you've never made this confession, if you've never made this step, then right now is your opportunity. You can admit that, man, you know what? I... I have been living like Herod. I have felt threatened by anything, God, that you wanted to speak to me through your word or through your people, through your Holy Spirit. That has been threatened what I felt should have been going on in my life. And now I want to give you the throne. It is not the prayer that we're going to pray that moves you across the line. It's the submitting of the throne of your heart that moves you across that line of faith. So if that's where you're at this morning, I invite you to pray with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We love that you are a long-suffering God. That you're patient. That you're forgiving. That you're merciful. When everything in us pushed you away. When we sought to take you out because of what you threatened 
you kept pursuing us. Even after being accepted into your father, into your house, into your family, there's times when we want to push you off the throne. And instead of dismissing us, you love us all the more. You embrace us in those times. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who's still trying to control their life, who's still trying to occupy the throne on their own, who's trying to pull it all together, who's trying to hold the story of their life together by their own strength, that they would yield the throne of their hearts to you, that they would see that you provided your son, Jesus Christ, that he's the only king that won't crush him. So, Father, today, as we remember the story of you sending your son in the most humble of situations, may we embrace that picture. May we approach like those wise men from the east. May we seek to follow you all of our days. And may we worship every step of the way as you reveal yourself in our lives. We pray these things in your darling son Jesus' name. Amen.